Chapter 9. Could it be any easier? Ernie was happy just to have steady work. After moving around the western United States for two years after leaving the military, he had been fortunate enough to find work as a ranch hand on the property that George would eventually purchase. It had taken him a full two years after leaving the Army to come to grips with the fact that there was little, if any, work suited to his training as a sniper. More specifically, he served on a LERP, Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol team, and was very good. LERP teams were tasked with entering hostile territory well in advance of any conventional troop movements to collect intelligence, survey terrain, and lay the groundwork for the larger troop deployments. Behind enemy lines for extended periods, LERPs were trained to be silent, invisible, and completely self-sufficient. But in the civilian world, there were simply no professions that demanded or recognized such abilities and skills. So Ernie was stuck taking menial jobs and traveling with the seasons to where the work was, whether it was construction, janitorial, farming, or ranching. Aside from the incredible discipline required, being a successful LERP also demanded the ability to quickly learn and adapt to ever-changing challenges of all kinds. Growing up very poor on an Indian reservation in Southern California, all but guaranteed Ernie a life of poverty and misery, as it did for most of his friends and family. In fact, it was this dim view of his future that led him, despite the vociferous objections of his family, to enlist in the Army at 17. For him, it represented the only possible chance for a life outside the res. He had always been a hard worker and was actually very intelligent, a fact that was either not recognized or not appreciated on the res. When he was 12 or 13, he had entertained a fantasy of being able to attend college one day, but that was quickly and definitively put to rest by his father, a stereotypical drunk who never advanced beyond an eighth grade education. After that, he had simply accepted the fact that he would never go to college. But at the same time, he vowed that he would never allow himself to become as worthless and miserable as his father. Even living in the back of his trusty Dodge pickup truck was a step up from the dead-end life on the res. He was only halfway fooling himself when he told himself that he enjoyed the carefree lifestyle that living in his car allowed. His overhead was low because all he needed was enough money for gas and insurance, and he could survive anywhere with his rifle, a few camping tools, a tent, and a sleeping bag. In fact, he didn't really even need all that. His rifle and a knife was all he really needed if push came to shove. He'd simply make whatever else he needed. In reality, he was road-weary and ready to settle down, if only a little bit, when he happened upon the ranch. He was initially hired for six weeks' worth of work when the ranch was going through a mini-renovation. The owners before George needed to upgrade the irrigation systems for the farming operations, and they needed extra hands to help with the herd of cattle while construction was underway. They offered a decent salary as well as free room and board. It didn't take long for Ernie's intelligence and skills to be recognized, and he was offered a permanent position. Two years later, he was running the whole ranch. He thought his idyllic world would come crashing down when he heard that the ranch was being sold. He had no idea about the new owner's plans, 
and he resigned himself to being back in his truck and back on the road. He had managed to save a substantial amount of money, and he was promised a large severance check, so he knew that he would be fine in terms of finances. Still, he would miss the ranch, the responsibilities, and the fun. The thing he would miss the most were the hunting parties. He always served as the guide. He had learned the entire property in a huge portion of the adjacent national forest, and his hunters never once returned without at least one huge trophy, and usually more. Yes, he would miss the ranch. Two days after the sale closed, he was in his truck on his way back to the interstate when he figured that he had nothing to lose by calling the new owner on the phone. He wouldn't beg for a job. That wasn't his style. Instead, he would simply mention the fact that he was available and would see if there was any interest. If so, he'd stick around. Maybe stay in the hotel in Twin Pines and have a little vacation. He could afford it, and he figured he had earned it. The first couple of conversations with George were short and to the point. George told Ernie that he appreciated Ernie's calls, but that he hadn't really decided what he was going to do with the property, so he hadn't made any hiring decisions. But the more they talked, the more they seemed to like each other. After a month of back-and-forth discussions, around the time George had started formulating his plans, George asked Ernie if they could meet. Ernie was thrilled, and they met two days later at the ranch. They met for about two hours that day and a couple of more hours the next. It was near the end of this meeting when Ernie first mentioned his military experience. He wasn't trying to hide this from George. He had simply learned from experience that people didn't seem to care one way or the other. But when he mentioned it to George, almost in passing, he saw that George stiffened and raised his eyebrows. Really? George had asked. Ernie got defensive. Yeah, but it was a long time ago, in a different life, he had said. Oh, what did you do? Uh, I was a sniper, Ernie said, hoping to end the discussion. George had smiled at this, something that made Ernie even more nervous. Is that going to be a problem? Just the opposite, I think. I think it's just the thing to close the deal, George said with another warm smile. He saw Ernie's confused look, and he raised an eyebrow. Is there something wrong? George asked. No. No, I'm I'm just kind of shocked, I guess. In all the years I've been out of the military, I've never had a prospective employer interested in my service. Well, I'm interested. Very interested, in fact. You have time to come back out here tomorrow? George asked. Sure, Ernie said with much enthusiasm. Good. Let's do it. The meeting tomorrow is really just a formality, George explained. I've already hired you. We just need to work out the details. And with that, Ernie breathed this huge sigh of relief and allowed himself to smile. They shook hands and Ernie left. He wasn't the only one smiling either. A full three years after he was hired, Ernie sat in George's study a place where they had held numerous meetings, and George explained his theory about the end of the world. Throughout the 45-minute discussion, the two men, who were now relatively close friends, looked into each other's eyes. George was anxious to see and measure Ernie's reaction to what he thought must sound like the maniacal ravings of a lunatic. At the same time, Ernie was looking for any signs that his boss was crazy. 
He didn't think he was. Even though his obsession with making the ranch completely self-sufficient had seemed excessive. But now, with this detailed explanation, George's motivations became crystal clear to Ernie. No, he wasn't crazy, Ernie thought, just obsessive. And, apparently for good reason. So, what do you think, George asked when he had finished. I don't know what to say, George, Ernie stammered. It's a lot to take in. Come on, Ernie, be honest with me, please. Coming from anyone else, it sounds pretty... Crazy, George interrupted. Not the word I would have used, but yeah, kinda. <laughs> Don't worry. It sounds a little crazy to me, too, when I think about it. <laughs> they both chuckled. I wonder, I wonder what would happen if I was wrong. I don't think that's the real question here, George. No, George asked. What's the real question? I don't know anything about astronomy or solar physics or anthropology, but I don't need to. The question spinning around in my head is, what if he's right? George smiled. He didn't expect Ernie to completely believe him in his theory, and he wasn't interested in anyone who would simply patronize him because he was the boss. He was just hoping that Ernie would allow for the possibility. He had succeeded. Every time I start on a new project around here, I tell myself how crazy this all seems, George said slowly. Then I take a breath and I ask myself the same question. What if I'm right? George took a seat next to Ernie. I honestly hope that I'm wrong about this. All of it. But... But what? Ernie asked. What are you going to do? Unbelieve something that you believe in your heart? Is that even possible? Nope. And that's the point. I totally get it. What if I'm right, Ernie? George looked into Ernie's eyes again. I really hope I'm wrong. But you're right. I can't make myself unbelieve. So I guess we'll have to be ready, won't we? Ernie extended his hand to George, and they shook hands. I guess we will. And with that, their unlikely partnership was, no pun intended, cemented. Over the next several months, George and Ernie discussed various ways to secure the property and build what they started calling Fort Porter. George was proud of himself as he talked about the battle of Fort, for Fort Wagner during the Civil War, because Ernie, an accomplished military man, had never heard of it before. On the other side, Ernie was impressed with not only George's understanding of defensive tactics, but also of his eagerness to learn. Through their extended discussions, two things emerged and became clear. First, they would have to plan to provide accommodations for at least 50 people, and possibly a few hundred. There would simply be no way to adequately secure such a large property with fewer. The second was that they would explore the possibility of designing and building an elaborate network of underground bunkers and tunnels. George thought that the bunkers would be relatively easy. He had all the cement he needed and could build and prefabricate as many reinforced concrete panels as he needed to build whatever structures were needed. The tunnels, however, 
were another matter. Digging, preparing, shoring, and constructing tunnels would be a tremendous undertaking and would be prohibitively expensive, even for somebody with George's newfound wealth. Time wasn't really a factor, but the number of workers and the sheer magnitude of the undertaking was overwhelming to both men. So they abandoned the idea of a network of interconnected tunnels and decided to build simpler structures with short tunnels as possible escape routes. This didn't sit well with George because he realized that if things got so bad that they would need to escape from the bunker, they would probably be surrounded in a short escape tunnel probably wouldn't save them. But it would have to do until they figured out something better. They settled for designing the main bunker complex. After another few weeks of fiddling around with ideas, George and Ernie decided that the main bunker should be a relatively small rectangular cube, built with steel I-beam supports and prefabricated with reinforced concrete walls. They would excavate a hole in the ground, large enough and deep enough to construct the bunker, and then they would cover it with 10 to 20 feet of earth. It would not only provide the maximum amount of strength, but it would also be very well insulated. Around the central complex, they would build eight other smaller bunkers. All of the bunkers would be connected by tunnels. When they had completed the sketches, they marveled at what they had created. It seemed simple enough, and as they studied it, they both saw the genius was in the very simplicity. Nobody from outside of the compound would even know that the bunker complexes existed once it was covered and landscaping was completed. It was perfect. The entire project had been coming together for George so easily that he ceased being surprised at his good fortune. From finding Ernie to buying the cement depot to investing in the company that made their wind turbines, Everything had seemed like it was destined to be. So George wasn't really too surprised when Rusty, the general manager of the cement facility, walked into his office with an unusual proposal. It turns out that when the country was riding high in the economic bubble created by the internet, there was a tremendous amount of home building going on around the country. And, since every new housing development needs sewer systems and other related infrastructure, The boom extended to a company in Canada that specialized in creating prefabricated sewer tunnels and components. That company had ramped up production at their vast facility to accommodate the current and projected orders. Unfortunately, as the internet bubble burst, the boom turned into a bust and the company was left with thousands of pieces of prefabricated sewer tunnels and no more customers. In fact, Almost 80% of their inventory was from orders that were completed, but payment never materialized. As construction companies, various cities, states, and municipalities all defaulted as the company went further and further into the hole. That company had reached out to Rusty because they were seeking a partner in the U.S. Northwest to help them compete for a big contract. They could handle the sewer part of the contract, but they needed a reliable supplier of prefabricated cement panels. While Rusty had no idea of George's plans to build a bunker complex, he already had a plan to expand the facility, which would increase the capacity of the cement facility. A deal with the Canadian company would make that expansion profitable almost immediately. For Rusty, it was a long shot. 
he had long ago accepted the fact that he was just lucky to still have a job after the sale and relocation of the facility. George had never really shown much interest in the company, and he pretty much left Rusty alone. Rusty didn't think that there was any way George would approve the new deal, but in his years as doing business in the construction industry, he learned that if you never ask, they can never say yes. He was never shy about asking. He was, however, very surprised when George said yes without hesitation. In fact, he didn't even hear George say yes the first time, so he was already going into his pitch when George interrupted him. Uh, I already said yes, Rusty. And the increase would... George held up his hand. Ernie, who was in the office, was smiling at the spectacle. He was vaguely curious as to how George would handle the situation. Stop, George said forcefully. Rusty looked at George and then at the floor. After a moment, he looked back up at George. When George was sure that he had Rusty's attention, he spoke. I said yes, Rusty. I think it's a great idea, a good deal, and it will fit right in to some of the other things we're planning. Yes? Yes, George repeated. It goes without saying that I want top dollar for our panels, though. Of course. But then, I want you to negotiate a deal on as much of their surplus as possible. We are looking for... George looked over at Ernie. Ernie continued. Ideally, we would like box culverts, but we can also use regular round pipes and associated accessories like junctions. Rusty looked confused. Ernie nodded. That's right. A few years ago, there was some pretty severe flooding around the property. And with some of the improvements that George wants to make, we're going to need to build in some some kind of sewer system. Prefab pipes would be perfect, and this deal should allow us to get some pretty cheap prices. Rusty understood and nodded. Oh, I see. Got it. But don't lead off at that. Get the pricing done first, and then mention that we might be able to take some of their surplus off their hands, George counseled. With all due respect, George, I got this. I've been negotiating construction deals for almost 25 years. When I get through with them, they'll thank us for taking the stuff off their hands, Rusty said. Everyone laughed. Hell, I I might even get them to pay us to take it. George crossed the room and shook Rusty's hand. As they shook, George stared intently into Rusty's eyes, measuring him. Ernie watched. You're a good man, Rusty. Get to it. Let me know if you what you need for the expansion. You got it, boss, Rusty said as he turned to exit. When Rusty was gone, both George and Ernie looked at each other with disbelief. Could it be any easier? Ernie asked. George looked at the map and smiled. I don't know, but I don't think we could have planned for something like this. Let's sketch out a couple of contingencies. And with that, George and Ernie mapped out the system of tunnels that would run throughout the property. Within six months, the box culverts, which were really just square sewer tunnels, began arriving by the truckload. Almost as soon as they arrived, Ernie had crews digging what would end up being several miles of ditches running throughout the property. That the actual construction of Fort Porter would consume many years was never a concern for George. 
He felt that he knew exactly how much time he had, and while there would be changes and additions in the coming years, he felt very comfortable with the infrastructure that he and Ernie had designed. As the early construction commenced, he found that he was finally sleeping through the night for the first time since the death of his wife. There would be plenty of sleepless nights to contend with in the coming years, but for now, George was happy to sleep. From time to time, he even dreamed. <laughs>